Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Amen. Amen. God is great. Amen. His greatness is not dependent on the size of our crowd this morning. Amen. Jesus never walked into a room and said, where is everybody? He just said, where two or more gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And that's good enough for us today. Now, if you are at home today, just want to say a word to you. I know there are many that are at home today that are struggling. You've been diagnosed. You've got COVID. And we just want you to know we're praying for you. You are important to us. You're a part of us and you've not been forgotten. And so, uh, so rest and get well soon. And we long to see you because our company is not complete without you. That's for sure. We're in Psalm 19 this morning. I think if I were to preach the rest of my life, I could preach from the Psalms and not exhaust all the content in the Psalms. We're in Psalm 19. I want to invite you to turn in your copy of the Scriptures. The words will be on the screen, at least for this first section that I'm reading. But uh, when you've got Psalm 19, why don't you just pop up and stand up where you are in, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Okay? Psalm 19. Verses 1 through 6 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. How big is your God? Since the heavens, it says, since the heavens declare his glory, perhaps looking at the heavens can give us a clue as to how big God is. Take a look at the screens.
ouch. That's a little humbling to think about it. And by the way, those of you interested in the soundtrack to that, don't look at John Williams, don't look at Star Wars. Anybody know where that's from? Anybody recognize that? Gustav Holst, The Planets, 1916, right? So uh, good stuff, good stuff. By the way, he wrote seven pieces, this is a little aside here. He wrote seven pieces of music, each one dedicated to one of the planets. Because in 1916, they didn't have all the technology that we have today. They only thought there were seven planets. So he wrote one for every, uh, for every planet. So it is kind of humbling. These first six verses show us that God reveals himself through creation. David focused on the heavens above him, but like Holst, he wouldn't have had any of this modern scientific data. And yet when David pondered the heavens, he was overwhelmed by the glory of God. And the Hebrew name that David uses for God here is Elohim. It's a rather impersonal name. It's, it's, it's just translated God. We might call him creator God, like uh, Genesis 1. Um, it, it, in the beginning, God, or Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Uh, but the existence of creation implies the existence of a creator. Would you agree? And a universe as big and complex as ours implies a creator big enough and wise enough to plan it and sustain it. But even more, Psalm 19 teaches us that this is not an impersonal God who just went off through the galaxy willy-nilly and would kind of create a a, a universe here or a planet or a a star there and then just kind of went on his merry way. No, David knew that this God who created all this was personal and wanted relationship with us because he was speaking to us. Verse 4 says, their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Creation is sort of a a wordless book, if you will, that everybody can read because it needs no translation. God speaks through creation day after day and night after night. His speech pours out silently, abundantly, universally. And what does creation say to us? It says this, there is a God and it ain't you. That's a rough one for all of us to handle, People can't say, though, that they have not heard God's message because verse 4 says that the whole world has heard. God's voice of power in creation prepares the way for his voice of grace in the gospel. When Paul preached to the Gentiles, he started with creation and then moved into the gospel message. Phillips Brooks is a name that's lost to history, but uh, he gave the first instructions about God to Helen Keller. You remember Helen Keller, the, the famed author, born blind and deaf? And he, so he gave her these first thoughts about God, and she replied to him that she had always known that there was a God, but she just didn't know what his name was. And beloved, that's our task. Our task is to tell the world that his name is Jesus. Because part of the message of Psalm 19 is, as great as nature is, it's not enough. It can't can't revive the soul. It it can't give you what your heart most needs. It can give you information about the glory, about the, the greatness, the majesty of God. But it can't revive or restore the soul Romans 1 makes it clear, none of us can say, well, 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 I didn't know. No no one told me. Oh, yes, they did. 
Oh, yes, they did. The the heavens told you. The blue of the sky reflects God's royal garment, Scripture says. The clouds are reminders of His presence. They are His chariot as He oversees His creation. The winds are His messengers. They come from the storehouses of God. The sun comes forth like a bridegroom, reminding me that Jesus is someday returning for His church. Every animal you see drinking or feeding on the grass or the water is being sustained by the Most High God. Poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning put it this way. She wrote, Earth's crammed with heaven and every bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. The idea behind that stanza is that if you see God in creation... It humbles you enough to take off your shoes because you realize you are standing on holy ground. Very few people, though, in the world realize this. Most of the world uses creation for what they get out of it. They pick the blackberries, and they don't know the blackberry maker. I got to travel to the Grand Canyon earlier this year for the first time. It's breathtaking. It's humbling. You may recognize that. That's sunset at Hopi Point there. Those of you who have been, you know there are no words to truly describe it. And the memory of it certainly points me to the greatness of God. It points to someone greater than we can think of or see with our eyes. The Grand Canyon is obviously much more beautiful than I am. It doesn't bolster my self-esteem. It ruins it. See, I don't always live beautifully or majestically. My heart is too often compromised with concerns about my glory and my kingdom rather than God's. But the hurt from this humbling, it's exactly what I need. Creation teaches me the fear of God. See, when you you gaze on the Grand Canyon, you'll never confuse it with an ordinary drainage ditch, right? When you stand among the redwood trees in Muir Woods, you will never be overwhelmed by the size of a Chinese tallow around here. Once you have seen the Grand Tetons in Wyoming, your own mountains of fear look like little bumps in the road. If you've ever been in the presence of this almighty Elohim God, everything and everyone that once controlled you and vied for your attention, everyone that seemed to have power over you suddenly has less power. We see the greatness of God in his creation, but that's, that's not enough. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. The scripture says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Amen? That's just true. In this passage, we learn that God uses his word to restore the soul. See, here David changes, and he refers to God not as Elohim. Now he uses a different Hebrew name for God, the word Yahweh, 
we translate it as Lord. Yahweh is the name God gave to Moses to use when Moses called on the name of the Lord. It's, it's God's covenant name. It's the name that people would use when they wanted to enter into a covenant relationship with God. So, so in one sense, Psalm 19 is saying, if you want to know the greatness the power, the majesty of the Almighty God. Go look at the magnificence of nature. But if you want to have an intimate relationship with this God, with the one who made you, the only way to find that out is through the Scriptures. Now, I realize there's some guys out there that will say, you know, I tell my wife, hey, me and the, me and the man upstairs, we have an understanding. When I'm out on my bass boat, you know, I'm just kind of with God, and I'm out there, and, and, and that's good for me. Well, Maybe that's a start, but can you really know God intimately in that way? Hmm. See, I think many people are confused today. They might say things like, you know, I don't really believe in the God of the Bible. I believe in a God of love instead. You know, when I read the Bible, I read about this God of judgment, and I just, I just don't buy that. But I think it's appropriate to gently challenge and ask them, well, well where did you get? This idea about God being a God of love. If you didn't get it in the Bible, where did you get it? Did you get that idea from nature with all of its hurricanes and tornadoes and volcanoes and forest fires and avalanches and tsunamis? Or, or perhaps you got the idea that God is love from natural selection, where all the animals are in a pack and one is old or diseased and, all, and then all the others all turn around and eat it. Bye-bye, Mom. You're holding the pack back, you know. Annie Dillard wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning book Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek back in the early 70s. She went out into the woods of Virginia to observe nature, and she thought it would fill her soul with a sense of love. But it didn't. She saw how nature is cruel. It's dog-eat-dog. It's, dog. it's, it's incredibly violent. No, beloved. It's only in the Scriptures in the Bible, that you see the message, God is a God of love. And that's what restores your soul. When it says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, that, that word reviving is the same word that's used in Psalm 23, where it says, he restores my soul and guides my path, guides me in paths of righteousness. So, so what is your soul? Well, it's, it's your very being. It's, it's the very essence of who you are. And the word restore or revive indicates there's something wrong with the soul. It was vived once, it was full of life, but now it needs to be revived, restored, reborn is how Jesus would say in John 3. It's the word for a house that's so derelict and so dilapidated and so falling down that you, you can't even live in it, it because it needs to be renovated. It needs to be remodeled, right? Made livable again. And friends, without the scriptures, without actual words from God, we can't know about the love of God in general or the grace of God in, in particular. Verses 7 through 11 stress the benefits and the blessings of God's Word. There, there are several synonyms used for God's Word here. Law, statutes, precepts, decrees, commands, ordinances. And, and, and it ends with talking about how valuable God's Word is. David is saying that the smallest law or decree in Scripture 
is more valuable than all the gold in the world. It's more nourishing and sweet and satisfying than all the honey in the world. It's more precious than gold, than much pure gold, sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. It's delicious. It is. Do you ever regard your Bible reading as your favorite food, something to be savored? I'm guessing in the last 48 hours you have had some of your all-time favorite food. I'm guessing if you're like me, you've had more than you really needed of your favorite food. And I went back for seconds and maybe even thirds on some things. I think there are three phases of Bible reading. There's the medicinal stage. You take it because, well, you know, it's good for you. And it's going to help you get well, but it doesn't taste terribly good. In fact, there are times when you swallow it and it's just downright yucky. Been there for sure. The medicinal stage. Then there's the oatmeal stage. You, you take it in because well, it's nourishing. You need it, you, you know, and, and, and it fills you up and, and it's bland though. And you know though it, you shouldn't go through your day on an empty stomach, you know, and so I need to take this in. Um, but you don't terribly enjoy it. Medicinal stage, oatmeal stage, and then there's what I call the cookies and cream bluebell stage. Get my drift? Oh yeah, it melts in your mouth. You roll it over and over in your mouth with your tongue and you swallow it and savor it and you, you let out a little, <sighs> and, 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 and all you can think of is, I gotta go score some more of that somewhere, right? I mean, I need a bluebell praise break right now. I mean, can I get a witness, anybody? Okay. Here in Psalm 19, David likens God's word to honey. It's sweet. It's refreshing. It, it, it wakes you up. You delight in it. it. It makes you happy to ingest it. And it's not just here in Psalm 19. It's also over in Psalm 1, where David says that a godly man or woman delights in the law of God. They pour over it day and night. Well, my guess is that this is a struggle for all of us, a lot of the time. No, it is for me to constantly delight in God's Word. Most people I know uh, that I talk to would say things like, you know, I really don't know as much about the Bible as, as maybe I should, you know. I, I don't know where chapter and verse and, you know, books and I don't, I don't know, you know, it's sort of a collection of stories, morality tales or whatever, and, and they don't necessarily seem very connected. Um, if, that, if that sounds like you, I got some good news and some help for you coming very soon to our church. On Saturday, February 26, we are hosting a ministry from Atlanta called Walk Through the Bible Ministries. I've been to many of their seminars through the years, and their goal is to teach you the sweep of history. And you remember, history is his story, right? They are there to help us learn the sweep of one single story in the entire Bible. When they come February 26th, they're going to teach us the Old Testament in four hours. It's the most fun allowable in church. It's, it's a cool, cool time. Now, we'll have some shameless promo videos about them in the coming weeks, that, but it's for adults, it's for students, it's for grades maybe fourth and fifth grade up. If you attend this 
you're going to learn the sweep of that story. You're going, you're going to learn to be able to tell that story to others. It, it's going to jumpstart your desire to read God's Word. You're going, to, you're going to learn this one thread of the story through Scripture, and you won't be intimidated anymore by the Old Testament. It's fun, engaging, life-changing. I encourage you to put February 26 in your calendar now. Now, along those lines, did you hear about the recent college professor who, who buried an Easter egg in the syllabus for a class he was teaching? I mean, have you, you may have heard that, that story here recently. He got tired of students not reading the syllabus. I mean, this is an idea for Jeremy that, you know, Jeremy, if you're watching, maybe you could use this someday. He, he buried this line in the middle of the syllabus. The hint read like this. It says, thus, and then it has a parenthesis, free to the first two claims, locker 147, combination 15, 25, 35, and then close parentheses, students may be ineligible to make up classes and blah, blah, blah. This little Easter egg would have led students to a locker that contained a $50 bill free to the first person who got there and opened it up. But at the end of the semester, when he, got, when he went back to check the locker, this is what the professor found. <laughs> the bill was still there. All they had to do was read. But the treasure went unclaimed. You get my drift, right? All they had to do was read it. And the treasure would have been theirs. But that treasure went unclaimed because the information was never read. Or how about, how about Forrest Finn? He's a wealthy New Mexico art dealer who offered a poem as a clue to a treasure he had buried somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. The treasure was a chest with gold and gems estimated to be worth somewhere between $1 and $5 million. But it took over 10 years for someone to decipher the clues, reading this poem over and over and over until they finally understood where the treasure was. And over the years, authorities say five different people actually died trying to find the treasure. That's how much they wanted it. So what about, what about your time in God's Word? Do you find treasure when you read the Bible? I know you find treasure when you let the Bible read you. And there's a huge difference. Do you read over and over and try to mine the depths of what God is saying to you? Or are you sort of content to just sort of skim it and, 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 and kind of leave it at that? Has there ever been a point in your life like these treasure hunters where you were willing to sacrifice anything and everything in order to be able to find treasure in God's Word? I, I mean, look at the treasures here in verses 7 through 11. It revives us. Makes us wise. How many of you would say, I've already got more wisdom than I know what to do with you? I mean, you know, um, it, it causes the heart to rejoice. Anybody here have too much joy in your lives? Oh, I need some sorrow. Um, it, it enlightens the eyes. How many of you would say, I really don't need any understanding or discernment for my future? I've got it all figured out. No, it's truth, it's righteous, and in keeping and obeying God's word, there is great reward, the scripture says. But there's one verse here in this section that stands out to me. Take a look at it for a second. Verses 7 through 9 are couplets. Each verse has two sections, two little verses about God's word. Um, for instance, verse 7 has the law and the testimony. And verse 8 has the precepts and the commandments. 
And then you get to verse 9, and it has, well, it looks like the writer might have messed up because it has the fear of the Lord and the rules of the Lord. Now, now rules I get, okay, sometimes we might refer to God as certainly more than this, uh, but there, there are definitely rules in God's Word. But, but the fear of the Lord, now, that's interesting. How does that jive with all these other synonyms for God's Word? Well, God's Word teaches us to fear God. And I think there's some confusion about that at times. What does it really mean to fear God? Back in November, we had Dr. Alvin Reed here to speak to our men in November. And one of the books he recommended was by one of my favorite Christian writers, a, a Christian psychologist by the name of Ed Welch. By the way, Ed has the best book I've ever read on dealing with anger. Um, he's also got a great book on shame. And, and Alvin recommended a book that Ed wrote, When People Are Big... And God is small. And I think some of our staff bought that book and are actually reading it. Um, Welch says this in the book. He says, when we have the fear of man, people are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. And since there's not room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. So the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God alone is awesome and glorious, not other people. How, how do we learn the fear of the Lord? Well, we, we learn about it through observing God's bigness in creation. That's a start. And we internalize it by reading and meditating on his word and delighting in it and praying that God would teach us. Here's one thing I know for sure. You will either fear God or you will fear man all the days of your life. There's no in-between. You will either fear God or you will fear man all the days of your life. The person who fears God will fear nothing else. So what is this fear of God? Welch says it's really a spectrum of attitudes, but there's definitely the element of terror. I mean, I'm an unclean person, right? I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinaholic, y'all. I'm a sinner through and through. And for me to stand before the almighty, holy God, who is morally pure, well, well, terror would be my natural response. Such fear shrinks back from God. It wants to avoid him as much as possible. But on the other end of the spectrum is a fear that only Christians can experience. It's a reverent submission that leads to obedience. Like we find in verse 11, in keeping God's word, there's great reward. This kind of fear is a devotion at every moment. It's, it's a sustained, constant awareness of God's presence. It's a, it's a fear of not meeting up to the expectation of the one who loves you. That's the fear of the Lord. And that, that O word, obedience, huh, that's a real challenge to me. Maybe not to you, but it sure is to me. It's so easy to downgrade obedience into concern about outward appearances, you know. We concentrate on our actions and we overlook our attitudes. By doing this, our sinful nature can give us a sense that we're okay. I mean, I haven't killed anybody today. I haven't been adulterous or stolen anything from the store today. So that makes me okay, right? Maybe, maybe even good, at least compared to others. Of course, we occasionally do bad things. We might get angry in traffic and use profanity or yell at our family or watch pornography when we're on a sales trip out of town. But on the whole, we tend to be fairly good, you know. 
And that's the problem, beloved. If we think we are usually good, then God is usually irrelevant. Don't need him. I'm pretty good on my own. When we don't have a fear of God, we live in the snare of the fear of man. And that leads us to, lead, to live with shame. You might say, well, I don't, I don't fear anyone. I don't, I don't care about the opinions of others. This is my life. I don't care what others think. But let's examine that for a moment, okay? It's kind of like good old Jeff Foxworthy, okay? You might be a redneck if, you know. Here's, you might have the fear of man if, if you ever struggle with peer pressure. You might say you don't, but why did you buy the clothes you bought or the house you live in or the car you drive? Could at least a part of it be that you were trying to look good in front of others and impress them? You might have the fear of man if you're overcommitted. Do you find it hard to say no? Perhaps you're a people pleaser, which <laughs> that's the fear of man. You might have the fear of man if you need something from your spouse or children like respect. Has your spouse become the one you fear? Have you allowed your, sp your spouse to quietly take the place of God in your life? You you'd do anything to please them, even over and against pleasing God. You might have the fear of man if you ever feel like you might be exposed as an imposter at work or at school or on the team because it means that the opinions of others can control you. Or, or maybe you just second-guess your decisions because of what other people might think. You might have the fear of man if you get embarrassed easily. How about lies, especially the little white lies? You might have the fear of man if you lie to yourself to make yourself look better in front of other people. Lies also serve to cover our shame before them. Do you ever avoid people? You might have the fear of man if you tend to avoid people. Because even if you say you don't need people, you're still being controlled by them, no? I mean, I mean isn't a hermit dominated by the fear of man? Aren't, aren't most diets, okay, you're going to say he's, now nah, he's meddling. Aren't most diets, even when you say, I'm just trying to get healthy, aren't they to a certain extent dedicated to impressing others? The desire for the praise of man is one of the ways we show that we don't have a fear of God. I love Proverbs 29, 25. It says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is kept safe. I love that verse. So Psalm 19 teaches us that God reveals himself through creation. He restores us through his word. And then God redeems the heart that fears him. Psalm 19 teaches that God redeems the heart that fears him. Look at verses 12 through 14. Verse 12 says this, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This part of Psalm 19 is a prayer based on a proper fear of God. 
David is fearful because he doesn't want to disappoint the one who loves him so much. He's asking the Lord to do something for him that he cannot do for himself. He sees God's might and power in creation, but it's not enough. He sees that God can restore him through his word, but he also sees that he's still going to keep on sinning after that. So he gets introspective here. He, he realizes the depth of his sin, that he doesn't even see all the ways that he sins. Some of his own faults are hidden to him. So he asks for forgiveness for those, and then he sees that he also sins willfully, and he prays that God will keep those sins from ruling over him. And finally, finally he gets in verse 14 to the words of his mouth. It's not hard for careless words to tumble out of the heart and crush someone else's spirit. I've been on both the receiving end and unfortunately all too often the giving end of careless words. I know my heart's tendency toward self-justification, self-defense, self-promotion, self, self, self. Three most important, the Holy Trinity in my kingdom, me, myself, and I, right? And for this reason, I need Psalm 1914. It's a prayer that stands as a guard around my lips. In verse 14, he also gets to the meditations of the heart. Because remember, Jesus later said, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So David knows he needs a change from the inside out. He's a sinaholic, and unless God does a work in his heart, he will never change. See, when people are big and God is small, I say things that can tear down others in an attempt to make myself look better than I really am. I tell lies that make me look better than I really am. I do things for the sake of enhancing my reputation with others. The words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, some days they really, really stink. But when God is big and people are small, when I really have a biblical fear of God, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart are really pleasing to God. So David asks that God makes his words and thoughts pleasing, acceptable. That's the word that's used over and over in the, New, in the Old Testament when it's talking about sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice. The Old Testament law basically said, make sure when you bring your animal sacrifice to the temple that it's perfect God doesn't want your leftovers, no, no flaws in the lamb you bring. He doesn't want you to bring a sacrifice that costs you nothing. I, I love the modesty of this prayer. David's not asking to be the best. He's not asking to be able to stand out or shine in front of everybody else. His prayer is merely that his inner life and his outer expression would be acceptable to his king. That it would pass the test of acceptability and bring joy to his king. And so now he calls on God not as an impersonal creator, Elohim, nor as the covenant name, Yahweh. Now he calls on him in an even more personal way. He calls him my rock and my redeemer. Here we have the reason why this prayer is uttered in the first place. The Lord is the sheltering rock, the one who protects us from ourselves. How many of you need protection from yourself? I know I do. He's the redeemer who delivers us from our sin, forgiving our careless words in the past and empowering us to speak life right now in the present. Think about who David is. He's God's anointed. He's the king over all of Israel. But he's also a foreshadowing in the scripture of someone else. And by my calculations, he's about the 28th 
great-grandfather of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who was not only present when the universe was created, Colossians says that he, he participated in creation. Jesus was putting things in creation that would reveal who he and his father are. And with regard to God restoring us through the power of the scriptures, Jesus himself delighted in the law of God, and he obeyed it perfectly. And Jesus is known as the redeemer, the one who paid, paid the price for our sins with his own blood. God reveals, beloved. God restores. God redeems. And he does it all through Jesus. Psalm 19, it's, it's all about Jesus. God of Psalm 19 is more than big enough to handle anything I throw his way. More than big enough to cover all of my sins, past, present, and future. Big enough to trust with an unforeseen future in my life. Is the God of Psalm 19 your God too? How big is your God? Do you see him this morning? There are only two ways to respond this morning. Either take off your shoes or sit around and pick blackberries. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.